Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stewart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stewart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change, Adam Serwer from the Atlantic Monthly joins me today. He wrote one of the uh, essays in the Atlantic Monthly's special issue on what a second Trump term would look like. And believe me, it's a a nightmare and a very uh, real-seeming nightmare. Adam's piece in the double issue is about what the courts will look like in a second Trump term. And as you know, Trump nominated a lot of nightmares last time, including the three Supreme Court justices who made overturning Roe possible. But that was, that was easy. The Federalist Society had time to line up Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett. According to Serwer, they didn't have all their ducks in a row for the uh, district and circuit courts last time because uh, they, along with a lot of us, were taken by surprise by Trump's victory. And you will remember that there were Trump judges who made the right rulings in the 60-odd election cases that went against Trump. But this time, the Federal Society is ready with a list of reliably right-wing candidates for federal judgeships. And remember, it will only take 50 votes to confirm a judge because the vice president in a Trump term will be, of course, a Republican. And uh, we got a uh, tough map in the Senate this term, folks. And if Trump wins, it's quite likely they'll take the Senate. Though I question whether they can keep the House after their performance thus far. Anyway, something that's been really bothering me, and probably many of you, is the way Israel has been conducting the war in Gaza. And I'm reluctant to weigh in on this because it's, it's loaded. I am a supporter of Israel's. I, I think it is right for the United States to have Israel's back. But I am not a fan of Netanyahu and the indiscriminate way in which he has been conducting this war. Now, it is true that whether or not it was under pressure from President Biden that Israel offered another ceasefire in order to exchange hostages that Hamas rejected. But a few weeks ago, Netanyahu said that he is proud that he has prevented a two-state solution because, he says, a Palestinian state would be like Gaza, has been under Hamas. And there's a number of answers to that. First of all, it has been Netanyahu who has played the Palestinian Authority against Gaza. It has been Netanyahu who has done everything to foster hatred for and rebellion against Israel in the West Bank and in the Palestinian Authority by standing by while radical right-wing settlers and police kill Palestinians. It was under Netanyahu that Israel completely let its guard down and 
That was in the wake of mass protests against his attempt to undermine the authority of Israel's judiciary. And that is coming to a head. And yes, Hamas embeds itself within the populace in, in Gaza. But also, yes, Israel has been dropping 2,000-pound bombs indiscriminately in many cases, killing thousands of innocent civilians. Things go wrong in war, and Hamas started this by slaughtering 1,200 Israelis in the most brutal and monstrously barbaric ways possible and took about 240 hostages. But the way Israel has conducted this has created a backlash against Israel. Palestinians have been screwed over by pretty much everyone for the longest time, but it's especially incumbent upon us who support Israel to hold them to a standard that respects fundamental human values. And I'm afraid that as long as Netanyahu is prime minister, we cannot expect that. Well, on to my conversation with Adam Serwer from the Atlantic Monthly. A great one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Last time we talked about uh, your book, The Cruelty is the Point, and I enjoyed that a lot. And so thanks for, thanks for coming back. Uh, it's great to be back. Okay, now... Um, one premise of the whole Atlantic Monthly issue on uh, Trump and the danger of having 
a second Trump administration. One, one premise of the whole issue is that he will better understand how things work and what he can do. And that is the premise of, of, of your piece in it, uh, the, a MAGA judiciary, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, that I will make maybe one distinction here, which is that it's not so much that he understands. It's that there will be a entire conservative movement of people who understand how to better get what he wants this time. And, and that includes the, the federal society, which obviously are very cognizant mm-hmm. of the way that their influence on the federal judiciary has shaped American law and want to continue that trend. You know, if Trump is elected, they're going to be ready. They're going to have lists of people that they want appointed to the federal bench. And when you look at the Trump era appointees, you know, not all of them are lawless trolls. They didn't quite have it all together the first time. Right. Is what you what you write, because in some ways, you know, that I mean, we forget about this, but that win was somewhat unexpected. I mean, it was, you know, there were people who were warning that it was possible, but there was a lot of complacency in terms of polling underestimated Trump support, particularly in key states. Um, And so it's not that it was entirely a surprise, but they were not ready in the way that they are ready now. Yep. uh, It's the uh, Federalist Society when it comes to judges and the Heritage Foundation when uh, we're talking about the rest of the administration. Let let me quote from your article. I'm quoting someone who follows the courts closely. They didn't have all the chess pieces completely lined up to get right-wing ideologues in every open seat, but now we do. But some of the judges Trump picked last time were way off the deep end. You cite a decision by a district court judge, Matthew Kaczmarek, to ban college students from doing a drag show. I I think he was the judge who first ruled to reverse the FDA's approval of the abortion drug Mifepristone. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that is very clear, and there's a a legal scholar named Steve Laddick who who has written about this a lot, which is that a lot of, I mean, in this case actually took place in Texas, but there's a lot of, you know, what's called forum shopping where they will try to get cases in Texas, particularly because they understand that the judges who have been appointed in Texas or who deal with cases in that area uh, are particularly ideological and so that they feel like they're more likely to prevail in that area. But in this case, you know, this was a, a, a lawsuit filed by students at West Texas A&M University after the school's president banned a drag show benefit and they're raising money. For the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ-focused suicide prevention organization. It's a celebration of drag. This is obvious sort of political content. And the president said, you know, he, he the new thing with conservatives is to refer to drag as, as kind of like, they, they, they try to frame it as like blackface, like it's making fun of women instead of what it is, which is... <laughs> You know, it, it, it is a form of self-expression. It's not an it's not intended to mock anyone. But, uh, you know, he sort of acknowledged that this was probably not legal, that he was violating the law. Uh, you know, he said, even when, the you know, I'm not going to accept this, even when the law of the land appears to require it. He got that's Cosmer, the dean. Is, I just want to make, yes, make sure dean. for my that's the dean, not the judge. So, OK. Uh, so it's the university's president, not the judge. Right. Oh, oh OK. He, yeah. Yeah. He, he got. Um, Kazimer got the case and he, you know, Kazimer has long been a part of 
the conservative legal movement. And the conservative legal movement now believes that drag is not protected First Amendment expression. And so he doesn't believe that either. And their method of doing this is to sort of shoehorn their conception of what should be protected speech into the law. And that does not cover forms of expression that they disapprove of, uh, which in this case is drag. Um, And the way that they justify that is by reaching the history and finding some sort of historical rationale for why their very contemporary grievance is actually the position that the founders would have taken had they been alive today. It takes a historical analysis that is meant to justify whatever stance defines right-wing cultural and political identity at a given moment and basically asserts them as essential aspects of American law since the founding and therefore constitutionally obligatory. You you know this very well. You know this is how uh, originalism works. Um, But the irony is sort of that it it is a kind of presentism. So it's a kind of, you know, the the way that I refer to it, um, you know, conservatives mock what they call living constitutionalism, which is, you know, interpreting the law in light of present norms and mores. But, you know, this is kind of undead constitutionalism. You know, it's a constitutionalism that, that, that retrospectively shifts with whatever conservatives happen to be angry about. Well, Bork uh, was, of course, the, the, you call him the father of originalism. I guess he was. And you say he cautioned that he will be an aggressive judge. Oh, that, that's uh, a Curlin caution that Bork would be an aggressive judge in conforming the Constitution to his notions of what it should be directed to a diminution of minority and individual rights. And that's sort of what the court has become. Right. I mean, this, you know, uh, Bork, I did not agree with his philosophy. I thought that for all the complaints about his nomination process, his views were actually fairly described, if uncharitably. Even he was like more rigorous in his scholarship than what we're seeing now, which is essentially, it's not a philosophy of legal interpretation. It's just a mechanism for justifying conservative outcomes in legal cases. And Curlin, you know, was a constitutional scholar uh, who was generally considered conservative in his time, but he did testify against Bork. And, you know, what he said was history should not ordinarily be expected to provide specific answers to the specific problems that bedevil the court. But of course, now it's sort of becoming obligatory for, for judges to do historical research. And it turns out that the quality of that research is often what you would find in a conservative column in a newspaper or in a conservative <laughs> right. or conservative website. That's that's the quality of the research that's being done. It's not the kind of rigorous scholarship that you might have even expected from someone like Borg. It, it, it's almost like, you know, the worst kind of blogging. You note that uh, Justice Alito in Dobbs, who wrote the majority opinion, of course, ignored the history of legal abortion in our early history in this country. There were abortions allowed until quickening, which was the movement of the, of, of the fetus, right? Mm-hmm. But he he just kind of leaves that out, right? <laughs> and uh, which is how they work. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the point here is to marshal history to legitimize a conservative outcome. It's not to actually look into history because history is pretty complicated. Not every historical fact is going to support whatever ideological point you want to make. Sometimes it's going to go in the other direction. And what you've seen in these cases 
is that historians who have expertise in this area, who are not like the people, not necessarily the people writing legal briefs, but people who know what they're talking about, you know, will say, well, actually, like the history that they're doing here is pretty bad. One example, you know, that I personally wrote about was in the affirmative action case. There was this sort of attempt by Clarence Thomas to pretend as though the framers of the 14th Amendment in the 19th century thought of race in the same colorblind conservative way that conservatives do now. And when they say colorblind, I think it is an insincere colorblindness. Sure. I, I don't I don't see your race. It is a modern affectation, this imposition of, uh, I think, a, a superficial race neutrality onto this debate that is done for ideological reasons, such as to outlaw measures that are intended to deal with America's past and present history of discrimination. When you talk about Melissa Murray talking about the founding fathers, how they really weren't taking into consideration uh, women's rights at at the time. There were no women making these laws. And so, you know, her right. point is when, when you are making judgments based on on women's freedoms, but you are doing it based on arguments made when there were literally no women in the room. It is a very convenient ideological approach to the law because it means you can just impose the status quo ante on, you know, no matter how far into the past that was onto the present as you interpret it. Again, like when these things, when the history does not go the way that they want it to go, when it does not meet their contemporary standards of what ideological standards of what they uh, want to achieve, um, they simply ignore it. One, one, one last thing I want to talk about with your article, which I thought was really interesting, is you write, the results of the federal judiciary are apparent as right-wing appeals uh, courts turn, quote, fringe ideas into law at a breakneck pace, as the legal reporter Chris Geidner uh, has Geidner, put it. Chris Geidner. Now, this is the part I wanted to get. The hopes of teeing up cases for the Roberts Court which can hide its own extremism behind the occasional refusal to cater to the most extreme demands of its movement allies. Is, that, is the North Carolina case where the state legislatures could not be controlled by the state Supreme Courts, was that kind of one of those? Yeah, I mean, look, that, that, that's a case that had a sort of extreme and completely invented legal idea, which is that the state legislatures you know, when it comes to voting, cannot be constrained by the state Supreme Court or state constitution. Because the court has six Republican appointees, they can afford to lose a justice or two who's acting on their conscience. Well, I think that Roberts really loved that one because they could, quote, surprise everybody. Right. He can look reasonable. That's what I'm saying. Um, yeah, Roberts is concerned about the legitimacy of the court. And he wants he does not want the court to be perceived as, you know, well, none of them want to be perceived as hacks, but he's the only one who's willing to moderate th the pace at which the court turns conservative proposals into law. He and Kavanaugh are the ones, you know, who are most likely to pump the brakes. Uh, but the fact is, like, conservative organizations have this expectation that they're going to win every single case they get into that court because there are six Republican appointees. And when that doesn't happen, even you know, when it's an extreme case, when the, when the court refuses to turn some completely baseless legal theory into law, the court can turn that into a 
PR victory by saying, see, we're not just a bunch of hacks, but <laughs> right. the, the request in, in the first place is unreasonable. And I highly recommend, you know, Chris Geidner, he writes a Substack on legal affairs that I, I really highly recommend to your listeners to read it if you want to keep up with what's happening. But he, you know, he, he made this point that like these conservative organizations tee up these bizarre cases. And then when the Supreme Court responds to them, as these sort of lawless proposals that they are, they then get to pretend that they're much more moderate than they, in fact, are. This is a very right-wing court. So let, let, let's go to the, the the Atlantic issue writ large, the Atlantic Monthly, which you write for and which so many great writers write for, and many of whom, uh, or a number of whom, have uh, been my guests on, on this podcast. David Frum talks about what, I mean, all of this is really all about what Trump will do in a second term. Basically, it is that he now knows so much more than he knew in the first term. The people to choose from in his administration has diminished in terms of respect, sort of respectable people. I think people who believe in American democracy see the problem is, you know, this is a guy who tried to literally overthrow constitutional government last time he was in power. And we see that as the problem. But for much, most of the conservative movement, the problem is that Trump had too many disloyal people who are not willing to carry out his orders in such a way as to make that happen. Um, they would have been happy with an outcome in which Trump stayed in power despite being voted out. And they have been sort of hardened or negatively polarized by the past few years and sort of rationalize what happened on January 6th and, and convince themselves that in a way that only, I think, a segment of the conservative movement had the first time he was elected, they are actually saving America by installing this guy in power and making sure that he can use the, the power of the government in undemocratic and authoritarian ways. And so the people who sign up for this this time are not going to have as many pesky pangs of conscience about what they're doing because they are going into the administration to do that. They know what they are signing up for now, and they're signing up for it willingly. Including using a number of articles, cite this, that using the Insurrection Act to use the military to put down anything. I mean, the, the specific Insurrection Act context, you know, this was, if, if Trump illegally seized power, the, the, you know, one of his attorneys said, well, that's what the Insurrection Act is for. In other words, he was going to turn the U.S. military on American citizens for protesting in defense of democracy. And that's a really crazy thing. It's a, it's a really scary thing. You would assume that that is, you know, the moderate center of the incoming, you know, if there is a second Trump administration, the moderate center is the guys who, who want to turn the U.S. military on their own people. This is pointed out in a couple of the pieces that just four, as of the summer, just four of 44 cabinet sec of his cabinet secretaries had endorsed his current bid. So that means that 40 of them haven't. <laughs> and, uh, that's a very telling fact. Well, they all know the people who are closest to him are aware he's unfit to wield power. And to the extent even the people who are loyal to him know this, they just like that about him. <laughs> Including Stephen Miller, I would assume. Uh, we'll get some post. One of the questions that comes up in a number of these is 
what happens when Trump has people who aren't confirmable, like a Stephen Miller, for example. Is he unconfirmable? I think so. If the Senate goes Republican by, say, one or two seats or so, and they get rid of the filibuster, I guess they could maybe do that. But I don't think Stephen Miller would be confirmable. I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I mean, I think it depends on the extent. I mean, to, if Trump wins, depends on the size of the victory, uh, the amount of power his coalition holds in Congress, and you know the mood of the country. There's there's a lot of different factors that go into this. But what's clear is that he is primed for vengeance, and the people yep. that are surrounded him are primed for vengeance, and they want to inflict suffering on the people they see as responsible for what they see as the decline of the country. Um, and they are going to use the power of the state to do that. And even if you can't get someone like that confirmed in an official way, these are the kinds of people who are going to be running the show anyway. Well, you don't have to confirm the, the chief of staff, right? Right. You know, White House chief of staff could be Stephen Miller's role. I mean, you wrote The Cruelty is the Point. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Stephen Miller was really kind of at, at uh, the center of uh, the cruelty on immigration, right? Yeah, I mean, look, there's not a lot of mystery here about right. what Trump wants to do with the power that he would have or what the people like Miller who have very specific policy agendas how they would use a Trump administration as a vehicle for their policy goals. There's just not a lot of mystery about it. I mean, we write about it in the Atlantic in detail because it's important that people understand what's at stake. But it's not like 2016 where there's sort of speculation about how serious this all is. Yes. And yet we see right now that this is very, very, very possible uh, and very scary. And if you read this issue, you see how scary it is. Uh, just let's go to some of these pieces. Uh, Ann Applebaum writes that he might pull out of NATO and what that means, <laughs> which means destabilization of probably the entire world because none of our allies will trust us and uh, other nations that are not so aligned with us will start looking toward Russia or China. Well, I, I, I'm not an expert on foreign affairs by any means. Uh, what I would say is that I think we're seeing sort of conflicts of territorial annexation happening in a lot of different parts of the world now that I think are, are an indication of absence of stability that is you know, quite frightening because that's the kind of thing that leads to armed conflict. My specific concern you know, with this issue and, and, and with this article is that you know, we typically think of the judiciary as a restraint on unconstitutional actions by the executive or legislative branches. Um, but the judiciary is being set up or is intended to be set up in such a way as to enable the kind of power grabs that we're talking about that are likely in a second Trump administration. We cannot assume that it will be a bulwark against lawlessness. And, and, and we know that because we can see how lawless they are already being in pursuit of their personal political preferences. Now, uh, Fr uh, Frank Four has a piece on corruption unbound. Uh, oh, that's what it's called on the amount of corruption that will be in a, a second term. 
that has judicial implications, right? Or, or the judiciary would on not cracking down on that. Well, I think, you know, this is this is unfortunately a trend that we've seen for some years now, even prior to Trump, which is that it's extremely difficult to hold public officials accountable for misuse of their powers. Uh, When you look back at the McDonald prosecution, former Virginia governor Bob McDonald, it's just simply the mechanism of prosecuting public corruption has become much weaker. What we've seen in the last Trump administration is that there is an an insatiable appetite for using the power and influence of the U.S. government for personal gain. Again, the the judiciary, we should not expect the judiciary to be a bulwark against that, not only because of a pre-existing, pre-Trump trend of dismantling or weakening legal mechanisms against public corruption for, you know, even if you agree with some of those rulings, the reality is that it is very hard to prosecute lawmakers for engaging in corrupt acts now because of the way that the law is. As we saw in the first Trump administration, there was a tremendous amount of use of the federal government for personal and financial gain. And there's no reason to think that that would cease in a second Trump administration. Well, he calls it corruption unbound because he talks about how he kind of will model it after what's happened in Hungary. Yeah, I mean, I think among conservative intellectuals in particular, I mean, like, you know, it's difficult to attribute certain things to Trump personally. But one thing that is clear is that, you know, countries that are, you know, socially conservative, um, that, you know, are anti-LGBT rights that are, you know, have a sort of ethno-nationalist approach that, you know, may have the superficial appearance of democracy, they may have vestigial aspects of democracy like elections, but those elections are not particularly competitive. Um, That is sort of the ideal system of government for a lot of the intellectual right. And those people are going to be very influential in a second Trump administration because that's their ideal government is one in which their political opponents do not have an opportunity to win the argument, whether that's in popular culture or whether that's at the ballot box. And it's, uh, you know, very scary when you read these articles about, well, for example, uh, who heads the FBI? Right now you have Christopher Wray, uh, that he will be gone, right? I mean, Trump's position is that the FBI should be his personal goon squad. And yep. Ray has not allowed himself to be used politically in so crude a fashion thus far. You have to assume that he would not be a satisfactory head of the FBI under Trump. Again, there's this question of confirmation. you know. But Trump's ideal FBI is one that pursues investigations against his political enemies and does so not on the basis of evidence of actual crimes, but on the basis of their political opposition to Trump himself. Uh, and I think that distinction is very important. And he has said that he would use the Justice Department to uh, go after his his enemies, right? That's right. And he has said that. So we should believe him. That's right. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a, there's a, the, the people around Trump tend not to do this, but he is sort of wry about his proclamations of what he wants to do with his power. Now, he's serious, but he's sort of playful and coy about it. Well, he says, I'll be dictator for a day, and then that was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. I mean, And liberals, you're taking everything so seriously. 
you know, you, you, <laughs> he's just kidding around, you know, come on, give me a break. Why do you guys have to be so serious? And of course he does mean it. And you can tell he means it because the people around him don't have that sense of humor. They all talk like, you know, comic book supervillains. And so th- they don't have any of that sort of wry irony or sarcasm because they don't have a sense of those things. Um, and so he puts a sort of false irony on it um, that people can use to rationalize their support for him that I think hit some of his underlings are simply not capable of. He has sort of a feral genius. Um, I think I stole that from Axelrod. He has kind of a feral genius to uh, signal things, and uh, but have it uh, ambiguous enough that some people go like, he "Oh, he, he was, yeah, yeah." He can say he didn't mean it. He's a troll, and he's he's good at it. We have to break for a commercial, and uh, here it is. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Let's talk about what he will do at the uh, on immigration, since you wrote about that in The Cruelty is the Point. I'm sorry, I don't don't remember who wrote this one, but said that he'll probably end up ending birthright citizenship. Yeah. So, I mean, birthright citizenship, obviously, it's in the Constitution. Uh, It's the 14th Amendment. It's one of the best things that the Republican Party ever did was create an amendment that says we have equality under the law. But the people who would staff Trump's administration, who support Trump, if you look back at there was a former conservative activist who released her conversations with Stephen Miller, her private conversations with him. And that revealed a sort of important aspect of the framing of their feelings about immigration policy, which was that the Immigration Act during the Johnson administration, which removed racially defined restrictions on who could immigrate to the United States, destroyed the country by allowing people who are not white to no longer have limitations on who could come here. And so they see racial diversity as the death knell for the country. And you, and you can see this, you know, the other day at the Republican debate, you know, one of the candidates started talking about how uh, great replacement theory, which is a white supremacist conspiracy theory, is right. real, it's policy. And it doesn't make sense. Just, you know, in a basic way, it does not make sense because as, as, as a plot, because <laughs> there are plenty of people of color who have conservative views, who, you know, if you, if you fled Vietnam, because of the war in Vietnam, you're not going to have like warm and fuzzy views towards communism. 
and that's true of you know Jewish immigrants from the Soviet Union. It's true of a lot of uh, immigrants from Latin America. It is simply not the case that if you are non-white, you are a liberal. This is sort of the framing that is put on it in order to justify racial discrimination against particular immigrant groups. But it certainly that appeals to Christian nationalists. It appeals to a lot of Trump voters. It just does. I think the issue with immigration is that uh, there are a lot of people who are not necessarily Trump voters, who are not necessarily all that conservative, really, who uh, respond negatively to the amount of immigration that we're seeing at the border. They are mistaken in believing that you can simply deal with that by putting more guns and fences at the border. It's a little bit like crime. You know how people think crime is like far worse than it is because of media coverage. A lot of people, we primarily experience immigration as an issue through negative media coverage. So it's not really surprising that people have fairly, you know, Americans in general have pretty conservative views on immigration. The problem is that those concerns then get weaponized into an agenda that is rooted in a belief that America is a white Christian country and other people really shouldn't be allowed to be here. And to the extent that they are, immigration policy should be guided by maintaining a demographic majority of white Christians at all costs. All costs includes you know, policies that are deliberately cruel towards people who are simply trying to come to the United States for a better life and who, who would be wonderful contributors to our economy and society. Let's see, Ron Bronstein writes a piece called uh, A War on Blue America. And remember that Trump uh, used troops in uh, Portland and, and in Chicago. This is something that Bronstein uh, writes about. Right. So, I mean, I think Trump, for all the Republican rhetoric about local control and allowing people to, to live their lives the way that they want to live them, Republicans do not believe that that applies if you are not conservative. Local control does not simply does not apply if you're Houston or Atlanta. If you're a city where most people have progressive views, you should not be allowed to govern yourself according to those views because those views are not conservative and therefore not legitimate. And Ron, in his article, you know, he mentions talking about Trump using even during the first Trump administration you know, dispatching National Guard troops, dealing with crime in blue cities as a sort of pretext for these crackdowns. And I think the the purpose of this is to sort of, there's a sort of conservative fantasy that American big cities, particularly cities that are run by Democrats, are just sort of dystopian hellholes, like Escape from New York or something like that. Right. Um, I'm, I'm dating myself with that reference, but, you know, these sort of post-apocalyptic hellscapes. Right. Um, and what what deploying, you know, uniformed, uh, armed agents of the state to those places does is even if there's nothing there for them to do, what it does is increase the sense of chaos and instability that allows, you know, someone in office to try and seize more power. It's a kind of kayfabe to use a wrestling term. It's a means. It's what a is that term? Thing that, kayfabe. Before, the, you know, in wrestling, you know, these guys all sort of, it's fake, but they all sort of pretend to, to hate each other. Oh, yes. Um, and in this case, this sort of pretending that American cities are dystopian hellscapes and sending uniformed armed agents of the state in there to sort of stabilize things gives a sense of chaos that says, well, someone needs to take control. Someone needs to impose order and therefore justifies 
of repressive actions by those in authority. When you were last time, we talked about race and sort of Trump's use of Atlanta, Chicago to talk about when he talks about race. In other words, signaling to his voters that he's talking about race. Yeah. I mean, look, if you, I think if there is, it's very clear that Trumpism has a very specific view of America. It is one in which only certain people are really American. Um, And that does not include people of color in America's big cities, which are centers of diversity. And to some extent, you know, Trump actually did better with non-white voters in 2020 and 2016, and it hasn't changed his view of that at all. And why, why is that, do you suppose? Uh, because it's a, it's a firmly held ideological view. Uh, you know, they believe this country is a white Christian country and it should stay that way. And people who do not fit those categories are, are not really Americans in the sense that they are. Yeah, I, I meant that. Uh, why is it that uh, he got a higher percentage of, of and, and in, in polling now, of non-white voters? You know, to some extent, it is an economic thing. I think that uh, although the Biden administration, I mean, the American, when you look at sort of internationally, America has had a stronger recovery from the pandemic than any other country in the world. You know, people don't experience that uh, in their personal lives. They, ex- they experience inflation. Um, they experience uh, wages not growing as, as, as fast as they want them to be. And so I think there is a little bit of nostalgia for the, the sort of late Trump administration when there was a very sort of pop-up generous set of social services uh, for people that really did take care of people during the pandemic in terms of unemployment mm-hmm. insurance, aid to small businesses, uh, the stimulus checks. And people have a kind of nostalgia for that that doesn't take into account everything that came before or the fact that job growth has been far more robust under Biden than under Trump. That said, I do think to some extent, there was this thing uh, in the Trump era where for all the negative coverage of Trump, the press would always say, oh, but the economy's good. And that was a way of saying, see, we're not ideological, we're not partisan, we're acknowledging certain positive aspects of the Trump administration. We're not going to say, well, the economy's bad just because we don't like Trump. But under Biden, you know, strong economic indicators seem to always come in the coverage with caveats. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a sort of it's, a, it's an extraordinarily remarkable thing about the coverage. And I think it happens for the same reason. People don't want to be too positive about the Biden economy because, you know, that seems like then the media is being liberal again. And they're very self-conscious about that after all the criticism from the right that happened after Trump lost, which was that the media had sort of lost its bearings and been too negative on Trump and what he represented and what he was trying to do. And I think, you know, when you look at his campaign now, what he's saying he's going to do, that's obviously not true. Well, speaking of, of the media and the press, what will Trump's relation to the press be like in a second term? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I am not sure. I thought the press was overly deferential to Trump in his first term. I think that power has a way of conditioning people to submit to it. We'll see what happens. That's all I'll say. But I do not expect, I do not think that the, the, the American media, contrary to conservative complaints, it was not the resistance during the Trump administration and it won't be during a second one. Um, it's, it's simply not the way the media operates, notwithstanding the, you know, the Fox News view of the world 
that uh, wishes that were the case. Well, Adam, thank you so much for, for joining me. And, uh, and, and uh, I just want to tell everyone to, to read this, this issue. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again sometime soon, okay? Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.